I think we've been through a period where too many people have been given to understand that if they have a problem, it's the government's job to cope with it. No government can do anything except through the people, and people must look to themselves first. It is our duty to look after ourselves and then also to look after our neighbor. People have got the entitlements too much in, in mind without the obligations. There is no such thing as entitlement unless someone has first met an obligation. That was Margaret Thatcher, and this is Freedom's Call. Let freedom Welcome to Freedom's Call, and now here's your host, Brett Sterley. Thank you for joining us today on Freedom's Call on Key Radio 89.3, Lake of the Ozarks. I want to start the show off the most important news story the past uh, week or two. Uh, we've, we've all seen the horrific pictures from Afghanistan. We've seen people trying to stow away in the wheel welds of C-17 aircraft, some clinging to, onto the outside of their aircraft and falling to their death. Think about how desperate you would have to be to risk certain death in order to escape the persecution that awaited you if you remained in your country. We've, we've seen parents throwing their children over the fence at, at Karzai Airport in an effort to save their lives. These parents knowing that they will likely never see their children again. Then our brave servicemen and servicewomen, 13 souls killed in the line of duty on August 26th. They're placed in a civilian area that had become a military battleground. They carried out their duty in the middle of the chaos. There is always debate and discussion when it comes to where and how our military is deployed, and, and there should be. The, the military does not exist as a social experiment. The, the military does not exist as a political tool. These are brave men and women who signed on the dotted line pledged to pledge their lives to the defense of our Constitution, of liberty, of America. The military exists, as Rush Limbaugh would like to say, to kill people to kill people and break things. Now, the United States had a presence of 2,500 non-combat military forces, intelligence assets, and a few thousand civilian contractors offering support services for the Afghan military. Our presence was in conjunction with NATO forces as well. Our military had not suffered a casualty in 18 months. America had dominance of the skies and in Afghanistan. The Afghan army fought on the ground beneath that blanket of our air cover and information supplied by our intelligence resources. Together, Afghanistan was effectively neutralized. We were not in a war. We had not been in a, in a war in over a decade there. This was a good, prudent application of our military with good results and relatively minimal risk. Now, I never served in the military I, I do not fully understand how each of you are processing these events, and I won't claim to understand, but I do know how I feel. You should be proud of your service. You stepped up to the plate. You performed your duty honorably. The policy decisions made by others cannot detract from that. The overwhelming majority of your fellow citizens truly appreciate the sacrifices you and your families have made and continue to make. It is a debt we can never repay. It is something, however, we can honor. We can work every day in our own way to preserve our republic and the liberty you offered your lives for. That is our duty. We'll be right back. I'm here to talk to you about a movement that's very important and concerns us all. 
there's an ongoing call by veterans of the nation for the people of America to rally together and activate Article 5 of the Constitution. The article grants the citizens of our country the right to limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, impose fiscal restraints, and place term limits on federal officials. It takes a united front of 34 states to rally a convention. This movement is important given how our federal officials are manipulating the Constitution to suit their purposes. This movement is backed by millions of citizens called conventionofstates.com. Here you'll find all the latest facts, news, and information about the convention and what's needed to make it a success. Why don't you head to conventionofstates.com to find out more information and be a part of it. Conventionofstates.com. Welcome back, back, everybody, to Freedom's Call here on Key Radio 89.3, Lake of the Ozarks. I'm your host, Brett Sterling. And I ran across this story a couple weeks ago uh, in a hat tip to lakeexpo.com for this. The Camden R3 school board this week voted 4-2 to two against receiving $8 million from the federal government via the American Rescue Plan. They've come through a program known as Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief. Board President Gail Griswold said the board was concerned about some of the ambiguity behind the funds. She called the program a moving target and said it was unclear what accepting the funds might obligate the district to do. Griswold also pointed out to the district's robust revenues. We don't need it, she said. We are well funded. This is a great demonstration of self-governance and local control. Ronald Reagan said the closest thing to eternal life on earth is a government program. The corollary could be that every government program has more strings connected to it than Pinocchio. Now, I had a, couple, I had a conversation with a legislator a couple years back. Now, this legislator, who has since turned out, and I, are on the opposite sides of the fence politically. From a little research and past conversations, I knew she was involved with serving children in her community with special needs. This is such a noble calling and and truly takes a caring soul. Now, I asked if the organization she was involved with, if they were privately funded or publicly funded. She said they were primarily publicly funded and they applied for both state and federal grants. I then asked if anyone she knew enjoyed the process of applying for federal grants. Well, that, that invoked a bit of a chuckle. Then I asked if they were free to use the grant money as they saw fit or if there were certain requirements that they had to follow. They did have some latitude, but had to operate within certain parameters in order to remain eligible for future grants. I then asked if she thought that that she or a federal bureaucrat in D.C. were a better judge of the resources her community needed. Well, naturally, she said that she was, and, and I agreed. Would it be beneficial to her kids and her community if she were able to allocate resources more freely? Of course, was the reply, and we agreed yet again. Now, I then asked, would it help to better serve these children if the funds remain locally? She said yes again, and there we were. We were three for three. Now, I pointed out that this is the objective of the Commission of States Project, that we firmly believe the state legislator is a better judge of the resources their district needs and the policies that would be most beneficial to that district. A state legislator knows this better than a congressperson or a bureaucrat in D.C., and, and why? Well, because they live in the communities they serve. They shop at the same grocery stores. They dine at the same restaurants. Their kids play on the same soccer teams as ours. I mean, they live with the results of their decisions. 
Now, the Convention of States Project's resolution aims to limit the size, scope, and jurisdiction of the federal government, restore fiscal restraints, and discuss term limits for for Congress and other federal officials. This process can return decision-making ability to the state legislatures where it constitutionally belongs. It can help keep resources local and empower state legislators to make more decisions for their district. As long as we have the wrong people continuing to make decisions they have no constitutional authority to make, we are more likely to receive bad policy. That's a political reality, obviously, that restoring the state's constitutional decision-making ability is not going to prevent bad public policy. However, it will increase the likelihood that we will have better public policy for our districts. Now, when state or government goes astray, a course correction can be made more easily than if the mistake is made at the federal level. State legislators are more accessible to we the people as well. This leads to more accountability. It also incentivizes citizens to practice self-governance. If men were angels, no government would be needed. Since we're not, decisions made by government should occur as close to the people as possible. The Convention of States Project's resolution using the Article 5 Convention of States process is a solution that is as big as the problems. I invite you to visit to learn more by visiting www.conventionofstates.com. Now on the other side of our break, we will be joined by Representative Curtis Trent to discuss the proper role of government and the political landscape here in Missouri. We'll be right back. This public affairs moment is presented by the Convention of As loving parents, we work hard in order to give our children a quality education. We would go to extremes to give them that bright future they so richly deserve. If you're a parent with a huge interest in the future of your children, then you need to hear this. This is a public affairs moment from Convention of What does your child know about American history, American civics, or our Constitution? Shockingly, most children have no idea about the answer. And you can't blame them. We've placed less emphasis on the history of our country, and surprisingly enough, our leaders don't care. There's a rich chance to grant your children the opportunity to learn about a fantastic part of American history. It talks about a smart move by the founders to reset the Constitution in case anything goes wrong with Article 5. If you're curious, visit conventionofstates.com to satisfy that curiosity. Well, thank you, Representative Trent, for uh, joining us here on Freedom's Call. So what district do you, uh, do you represent here in the Springfield area? And uh, can, can you kind of give us an idea of what communities are contained within that district? Uh, Certainly, and it's a real pleasure to be here with you. So I represent Southwest Springfield and the city of Battlefield, which is the 133rd district. Uh, It uh, is a pretty good chunk of uh, kind of suburban uh, Springfield, a lot of residential uh, communities, a lot of families, a lot of retirees uh, in uh, in a a really fast-growing part of the county. Yeah, it seems like that there's a lot of um, growth, you know, south of Springfield into Ozark and Nixa, but also that southwest region has really experienced a lot of growth here in the last uh, in the last uh, ten to fifteen years. Um, what what are some of the what are some of the concerns? Maybe a couple couple of the top concerns of, um, of of voters there in your district. Well, I think the concerns are, are pretty similar uh, across the state. I mean, the, you know, crime is an issue. Taxes are an issue. Uh, they're, they're worried about the quality of their, of their schools. 
they're they're worried about the uh, the economy more generally, uh, jobs, uh, immigration, and things that impact on on uh, you know high paying jobs being in the area. Um, you know, there's it's pretty unsettled time, uh, but I think folks in in uh, in my district in the Springfield area generally also. Uh, realize that we've got a lot better than other parts of the state and other parts of the country. We still have relatively lo- uh, low cost of living, uh, pretty good transportation uh, networks, and uh, you know fairly, uh, you know, a competent local government that is uh, that is still working to expand the amenities uh, in our area and uh, and make our community uh, even more hospitable. So we, we've got pretty good, but. You know, we, there's an eye on some of the bigger issues uh, across the nation, across the state that could uh, create problems down the road. Sure. I think there's a little bit. It kind of seems to me in the area there's there's a lot of vigilance to uh, to, to not let some of the uh, some of the, the, the bigger city issues kind of invade, um, invade the Ozarks. I know Springfield's grappling with that here right now with some of the uh, some of the issues going on in the school system. But I know that uh, it seems like some of the outlying areas are trying to kind of create a firewall and, and, and prevent that from uh, from from spreading in their communities. What what exactly prompted you to uh, to get into politics? Is that something that you had uh, had been a uh, you know a, a passion of yours for some time? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always had an interest uh, in politics, an interest in law. I'm an attorney uh, by training, uh, an interest in history, and uh, all those things I think are very important uh, when it comes to politics. Uh, sort of history is how we got here. Uh, the law is what you're doing. Uh, and, and politics is what makes it, makes it all happen. Um, so I, I've had an interest for a long time since a, since a fairly young uh, child. And then uh, kind of quite by accident, when I uh, got older, uh, I was actually already an attorney uh, and a local auctioneer real estate uh, broker named Billy Long ran for Congress. Uh, and I happened to, uh, to join his campaign. I was uh, sort of started as, a, as his first staffer uh, on his campaign when he ran the first time. And uh, you know, obviously when he was successful. Uh, invited me to uh, stay with his office and uh, go to Washington, D.C. and do policy work. So I did that for four years as his deputy chief. I uh, had, had a really good experience out there. got to work with uh, a lot of these issues that, that face our state and our country at the federal level, uh, which is a very interesting perspective. And I, I think it's, a, you know, it's something that I add to the conversation as we try to uh, work with the federal government here locally and at the state level, and also occasionally push back uh, against the federal government when it goes too far. Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, from a lot of the grassroots volunteers that I work with, you know, they, 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 com- they complain that, um, you know, the government of Jefferson City sometimes is, uh, seems a little dysfunctional. I, I'd say that probably pales in comparison to some of the things that happen in D.C., yeah, and unfortunately, the like the uh, the problem in, in D.C. as I see it is not so much uh, the elected officials, although some of them are are a problem as well. But it's really the the entrenched bureaucracy, the institutions uh, of government. They have become so large and so unwieldy, uh, so unaccountable to the public. The disconnect between the elected officials and the bureaucracy that actually runs the machinery of the state. 
uh, seems to me it, I get, it was a fairly wide gulf uh, when I was up close and personal and saw it in action. And it seems like as I've watched it from a distance, uh, now that I'm, I'm back in Missouri, it seems to have only grown wider. And I think the public recognizes that as well and becoming increasingly disenchanted uh, with some of our governmental institutions. And it's really a, a warning uh, sign that that we need to reorient ourselves. Uh, our, our government needs to reorient itself toward the will of the people and faithfully administering the uh, the laws and the obligations and and looking out for the interests of the of the public that pays for this government and sends these folks to D.C. to do these jobs. That's a good point. And I think that's a perspective that some people, you know, kind of kind of forget because you we get the cloud of or I guess the window dressing of you know, there's a there's a cost component there that a lot of people that actually promote those programs, you know, they don't want to talk about the cost component there because these numbers just get to be so large. I mean, they're large on the state level and they're just colossal and incomprehensible pretty much on the on the federal level. Yeah. And, and once they get so large, you know, they're 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 not administered in a, in a way that is efficient or, or has any, any cost savings uh, to it at all. Uh, and, and there's a lot of opportunity, any, any system that large, any institution that big, uh, is leaky. And, and by that, I mean, it leaks power, it leaks money. Uh, it, you know, it's very easy for people to get in there, uh, with, with less than good intentions and, and siphon off, uh, either, either money or power influence from those kind of institutions, uh, and, and that's to the detriment of all of us, uh, because we have to spend a lot of money and uh, to uh, to make these institutions run. Uh, we get obviously the, every state gets gobs of federal money and, you know, Missouri is no different there. But really, it, it, it kind of hamstrings you as a legislator and the best uses that would be here in the state of Missouri just simply because of all the constraints and all the boxes you have to check at the federal level in order to in order to receive those funds to begin with. Yeah, it's particularly frustrating on the state level because about two thirds of our budget is federal pass through spending, uh, which means that the federal government sets those priorities and, and, and requires that spending. And we have very little discretion or oversight uh, of that of that expenditure. And it's frustrating not only because the priorities of the budget are set and the money is already spent uh, before we ever get it. Uh, but it's also frustrating if you think about it from the taxation side. So not only is the federal government deciding where the money will be spent, it's largely deciding how much money is taxed from Missouri citizens, because the federal government taxes that money directly from our citizens, takes it to Washington, D.C., uh, cuts off a piece of it for administrative oversight, uh, a fairly hefty piece, by the way, and then they send a chunk of it back to us. Uh, with instructions on how to spend it. I think it would be a lot better if we short-circuited that entire process. We, we let the, gov- like the federal government stop taxing Missouri citizens, stop telling us how to spend our money, and let the state set its own taxing and spending priorities in accordance with the will of the Missouri voter. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, I, and that was one thing that I know Ronald Reagan once quipped about, uh, about that whole entire dysfunctional process that and he pointed out that there seems to be a lot of uh, overhead that gets to be uh, sucked up there in the process between, uh, you know, funds going from the citizens to, to, to the federal government and then back to the states. And no one truly knows how much, but it's considerable. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big haircut. Uh, the federal government, I think, is still by far the largest employer uh, in the entire country. 
uh, and uh, I mean the the uh, uh, you know the the numbers are so large that they're meaningless to uh, to most people, and and they're they're theoretical even to those of us that that deal with it uh, on an ongoing basis. When you're talking about you know three, four, five, six, whatever trillion dollars that we're up to now, and twenty five, thirty, however many trillion dollars of debt that we have, uh, those numbers become so large. Uh, as to uh, be almost uh, meaningless in terms of like being able to grasp it in a concrete way. Like this government is spending more money than any government has ever spent in the history of the world, to my knowledge, and it is in, in greater debt than any country in the history of the world has ever been in. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm all about, uh, you know, historical first, but I'm not sure that these are, are fresh waters that we want to, to tread. Yeah, we don't want to be setting the precedent of history, especially when it's going down, you know, something that, you know, has been destructive to so many nations, you know, that haven't even gotten to this point of 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 debt that we have as a percentage of GDP. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, the United States is the most most successful and most prosperous uh, country in, in the history of the world. So, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you can just withstand a lot more debt, but still those ratios get out of whack. And, you know, we're, we're looking at in last week's last week's show, we talked about uh, the all the all the spending we've had in the, in the last 20 months. And we're looking at, you know, spending almost uh, 17 trillion dollars between actual spending and uh, federal loan guarantees through the PPP uh, program for uh, supposed COVID relief. Uh, you know that and you're looking that that's basically the size of our economy. So we're almost spending you know, the size of our economy over 20, a 20 month period, which is just, as you said, I mean, no, no, no country has ever spent these staggering sums of money in, in the, in the history of the world. Uh, yeah. And, and, and we're spending them in a, in an environment where we're not in like a war for survival or some other extraordinary uh, circumstance uh, that, that I think would justify it. And, and just as, as success compounds over time, and, and it's true, we have been a, a wildly successful country, failure compounds as well. And, and just as easily as, as we've had uh, inertia working for us in the past, uh, I'm afraid that we, we're going to have uh, economic headwinds working against us at increasingly uh, high rate in the future if we don't change course. And the last thing we want is for our country to go down history as a cautionary tale. Absolutely. No, and I think it's important that you, when you were talking, when you were talking about taxation a little bit earlier, from a historical perspective, I think you, you were a history major in, in college, if I remember correctly. Uh, history minor, but a history a political minor. science major, but yes, close. Okay. okay. Um, you know, from a historical perspective, you know, that was the way that the government was set up. The taxation was set up from uh, from from the framers, from the founding of our country, is that that the state, you know, state and local governments tax their, tax their citizens. And then the state took a portion of that money and sent it to the federal government to administer the federal functions of the, of the government. And now that's all been turned on its head to where we're taxed directly at the state level and directly at the federal level. And then even the federal government even dilutes our dollars and then send, like, as you pointed out, sends them back to our, our states with conditions on how they should be uh, quote unquote invested. I guess that's the buzzword, you know, that's supposed to be innocuous, but you know, it's just, this is our money coming back here to us. And, 
it's really the states are kind of the firewall and we would be better off setting more policy here and, and retaining those funds here in the states uh, to, to, I would think that that would serve the citizens better. Is, is that kind of your perspective? Yeah. I mean, at the very least, I think that the money would be, uh, would be spent with, uh, with, with less overhead and it would be spent in a way that's more in accordance with local priorities, uh, which I think is always uh, preferable. Uh, but for the, you know, for the first one half to two thirds of the country's history, the federal government uh, had had virtually no no budget and and it was it was pretty much uh, uh, there were some excise taxes there were some luxury taxes mostly on trade that uh, that funded a lot of, uh, of what the federal government did but the vast bulk of government activity was done at the state and, and local level you're listening to freedom's uh, call and, on and key radio 89.3 well. lake uh, of the ozarks and the i'm your host brett sterley uh, we began to centralize uh, the uh, the government centralized spending. You you had the income tax come in as a permanent feature of uh, of federal revenue, and that's when revenues really picked up uh, at the federal level. Was when they could go after people's incomes directly, uh, which uh, is a is a historical oddity. Uh, I, I'm not aware of too many countries throughout history that that primarily raised money through taxing people's income uh, directly, but it it certainly has enabled. Uh, our government to uh, take a much larger share of GDP as taxation than than most other countries throughout history as well, and including our own country. Uh, I mean, uh, probably less than 10% of the national income was spent by government 100 years ago, uh, certainly 120 years ago. And, uh, and now it's 40 to 60%, depending on how you measure it. We will resume our conversation with Representative Curtis Trent and dig deeper into Missouri politics and the upcoming election season. You're listening to Freedom's Call on Key Radio 89.3, Lake of the Ozarks. <laughs> 